11.06 on this Thursday morning on the text line to 630-630 in the context of Edmonton's offer to the Pro Rodeo Association here in, in Canada about four and a half million bucks worth. It's a bigger offer than it's ever been, but still the association saying, yeah, we're going to look around. Maybe we'll take the CFR to Calgary. Maybe it'll be outside of Edmonton in 2017 for the first time in what would be then 44 years. Oh, that's a significant number for the end of dynasties, isn't it? <laughs> Doug Goss in the studio here. We'll get to him in just a second on the text line to 63630. Listener says, OEG, the city of Edmonton and Northlands, they're not stupid. They wouldn't let this go unless Pro Rodeo is using the leverage of leaving to negotiate a huge purse that doesn't make it viable. This is the only time they'll have to negotiate. They'll move to wherever they're offered the most money. And could you blame them? Listener here says, uh, MSG in New York does not put on a full-out rodeo. They only do a bull-busting event nowhere near the setup and the animal needs of the CFR. Another listener here, this is Melinda, uh, says, I'll start again about how the CFR has a genuine concern about how ticket prices for the public could be affected. It's great that there's more prize money available for contestants, but this should not be to deepen Daryl Cates' pockets on the backs of the patrons. An interesting point. Another says the interesting remark from CFR, from the Pro Rodeo Association, was whether or not fans and sponsors could afford it. They said, then again, of course, as well, think of parking or a lack thereof for all those Dodge Ram Dooleys. I wonder if that might be an issue. Doug Goss joining us here in studio. Doug, come a little closer to the microphone. It's fabulous to have you here. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Uh, it was it was about, uh, we talked about 44 years, the end of a dynasty, and we'll get to the other one that ended soon. You haven't, uh, Pro Rodeo, this might be one of the boards uh, or one of the involvements that you haven't had, one of the only ones you haven't had. In your estimation, how important would something like Canadian Finals Rodeo be to the city of Edmonton? Well, it's a, it's a it's a signature piece. It's um, you know we we need to fight for everything we can get in this in this city and in this region, and uh, uh, that that's one of the things that has defined us. So you know I think would be a a real shame if we lost it. Of course, I'm referencing the other 44 year dynasty, the Tory dynasty, and I want to talk to you about that in just a little bit. The state of conservative politics here in the province of Alberta. But just a couple of days ago, in the chair you're sitting in, Michael Fair joined us. He's the incoming chair of the Board of Governors at the University of Alberta. You're the outgoing chair following your resignation uh, last July or July of this past year. A term I know that you served one full one, you, you, you're into your second one, and I know that you've been very proud of your service. What are you most proud of in retrospect of your accomplishments there at the U of A on that Board of Governors? Well, I, you know, it's first of all, the university is is such an important part of of um, not just this city. I mean, it's it's this this province. It's been around over a hundred years, and uh, I I think Michael Fair is going to do a terrific job as uh, as the chair. What I'm most proud of, we really set the institution up on um, a vision of of. Uh, of uh, global excellence, you know, we we had a, a a full year of strategic planning that ended up in a retreat at uh, the Banff Center, and that retreat was uh, uh, the stakeholders there were students and faculty members and deans and and people who care passionately about that place. There were sixty some people who participated, but coming up with that vision that that this needs to be needs to be a public teaching research intensive university com that competes with the very best in the world. It's it you know to put 
Alberta at this time, uh, to have a university that doesn't compete at the very highest levels, you know, that's what drives economies, that's what drives wealth creation. Um, and, and just to be able to say that was critically important because that led us into a whole bunch of things, including a search for a new president. And I can tell you, without that kind of vision, we wouldn't have been able to hire the quality of the person we did and Dr. David Turpin, who's absolutely superb. Um, he is going to, um, you know, really make a difference as as the president of that university. Understands the potential of the university, understands where it can go, and I think he's got a great plan to get there. We talked to Senator Doug Black just yesterday, and he said, I know we don't have a lot of money right now, but we need to be funneling more to our universities, specifically in research. Why is that so important? Well, Ryan, if you look at, you know, look at the province of Alberta, just look at any major um, driver of our economy. I don't care if it's canola, or beef or oil sands, all of that technology originated at that university. That's where it all started. So when you look at the future of nano, uh, of our great engineering faculty, of medical research, uh, our science faculty, all of these things that if, if we're successful in, in bringing the best and bright, keeping the best and brightest and bringing the best and brightest here in some areas, we can create uh, that, that kind of energy which is going to fun, you know, be, be the wealth creation tool which is going to drive the new economy. You know, keep in mind, you know, I, I, you know we, there's so many things that the dollars get pinched on right now. So many asks, there's environmental concerns, there's all these things, but everything starts and stops with wealth creation. So unless, you know, you have, uh, you're living in a jurisdiction who's, who's prosperous, you know, whose who's, who's citizens are, are, um, are, are earning money, great wages, their businesses are, are booming. And um, they're able to create wealth as a, as a fundamental, and in a way that's, that's, you know, when you're looking at your neighbor next to you, I don't care if it's the United States or other countries, other provinces, if we're not doing it better, we fall behind. And the university is one of those drivers that allows us to be better, to take it to a new level. And that university has, frankly, opportunities to do things that many other universities in this world don't. I know through your tenure, uh, the U of A endowment fund uh, was raised by 50% to about $1.2 billion. Yeah, uh, I'm, obviously real proud, that's I'm real proud of that. It took them 100 years to get it to $800 million, and in three years we took it to $1.2 billion. So. How'd you do it? Uh, well, you know, we, we, we had some good management. We also uh, worked hard with the government to solve what we call the access to the future problem. We had a number of donors who had donated many, many millions of dollars on the basis of the government matching those funds, and they were never matched. And uh, we worked really hard to get the apprentice government to step up, and they did to match those donations. That resulted in $100 million alone to the university. Um, and then that's just, you know, just really going out and, and uh, getting people to buy into the vision. On this show, uh, we insist that people wear their hearts on their sleeves and speak passionately. And, uh, of course, you did exactly that leading up to the provincial election back in May. It's no secret that you're a conservative supporter. Specifically, you've been a, a Tory supporter in past. So I understand that your answer to this question will be based on your own personal perspective, which is, quite frankly, why I'm interested in it. How is the current provincial government doing? in your estimation when it comes to funding and overseeing post-secondary education at the University of Alberta and other institutions? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's a bigger question. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't see any cutbacks or anything at the university. I think, I think, uh, 
I think this government's been very, very supportive of post-secondary, and that's that's a great thing. Um, you know, it, you know, I'm I'd be concerned. I mean, at the end of the day, we all have to worry about how we're going to pay for these things. You know, how we pay for great education, how do we pay for healthcare, how do we pay for a climate change policy that we all want? How does that happen? And, and I'm more concerned with the overall policies about where we're going as opposed to specific policies on funding um, things like post-secondary education. It, well, and you have an interesting perspective, Doug, and I think that this is, is one of the reasons, by the way, if you're just joining us, Doug Goss, our guest in studio, because you've got your hands in a lot of things. You sit on about a dozen boards, right, uh, including nonprofit boards at Fort Edmonton Park, Hockey Canada, the Stollery Children's Hospital, Tourism Jasper. Uh, you have several businesses. You have a law practice. So I think you probably tend to see things in more general overviews. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. You know, our, our, my business interests take me throughout Canada and the United States. So, we, you know, we see... We, we see a, a global perspective. Uh, so you're not just going to see an issue as an example from, you know, as the outgoing president of a university board of governors, you're going to see it as an investor, as, as, as a, someone who's practicing law, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to touch then on what you just alluded to. Sometimes the issues that are bigger than just one portfolio, overall government performance and what concerns you, maybe what you'd change more with Doug Goss in studio right after this. Doug Goss, our guest in studio, lawyer, businessman, officer of the Alberta Order of Excellence, and of course, past president, chair rather, of the U of A Board of Governors, asked you about how this current government, the NDP government in the province of Alberta, is doing on the university or the post-secondary file. You say, well, we need to broaden our focus, look a little bit more bigger picture to evaluate their performance. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, Ryan, this is such a tricky time for this province. You know, we've got um, a sector that's, you know, being pounded. We've got businesses that are closing. We've got people losing their jobs and their houses. And, you know, the policies of government have to reflect that. And to the extent we don't, we do that at our peril. I mean, I was listening to Brad Wall last night talk about, um, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau's plan to put in a carbon tax regime for the entire for the entire country. And he said, guys, my province is getting killed right now. The last thing I'm going to do is put in a new tax. This is not the time to be to to be hurting people, which are already hurting. So, I think when we look back, you know, at you know some of the policies that this government, the things I was concerned about uh, last May, there's, there's there's still concerns. You know, at a time when the when the energy sector was getting pounded, that wasn't the time to be raising corporate taxes. It wasn't the time to be doing a royalty review. Do you get and, the sense, though? And I mean, it's I, I suppose a, a cruel irony for a guy representing a landlocked province like Saskatchewan that at the first minister's meeting right now, Brad Wall is on a bit of an island. Yeah, it's it's amazing. He's probably the only guy standing up for conservative principles that I that I see at least in in the entire nation. I was just in Ottawa at the uh, Manning Center for you know a, co- a conference on uniting the right, and uh, you know it's 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 troublesome because you know I think everyone in this country would say, yeah, we want to be responsible on the climate change file. We want to be responsible, but you also have to ask the question: Who's paying for it, and can we afford it, and is it being done in a way that's responsible that takes into account the fact that in Alberta's case, we're only four million people, and whatever. Whatever we do has to be in the context of our 
our kids and our kids' kids, and can we afford this? And can we can we put in, um, you know, a, a whole structure that that is going to make their future sound? And you know, so so you know, we have to think of those things in the, in that context. I think. Who in Alberta has a message that's resonating with you? I, I honestly haven't really heard any. You know, I think there's there's a, a very fractured right right now. I think, you know, you still see, I think I saw the latest polls. Uh, you've got the Wild Rose and the PC party, whatever that that is right now, uh, each running at about 35%. And and that's kind of worrisome. But, you know, I, somehow that group's going to have to come together and figure out a way that um, they can create policies that are going to ensure the prosperity of the next generation. Of what the gives you confidence that it's important that the Wild Rose Party and the PCs come together? I, I quite frankly, am skeptical that it can actually just work smoothly. I think there's a reason why there's two different parties in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, none of them are perfect on their face. But the reality is that as people continue to lose their their jobs and their houses and and uh, their businesses and employment starts to rise, um, the reality of of that, uh, the and the anger that that should garner. I think has to force those two together to come up with common policies that are in the best interests of of uh, every Albertan. I understand you also had an opportunity to, to spend some time while you were out east with Ronna Ambrose, the interim leader of the federal Conservatives uh, at Stornoway. What, what was your message to her? What was her message to you? How did that meeting go? Well, it, it was a, a you know very interesting. You know, Ronna was a bit of an, an enabler to bring some people together to talk about the future. I, I had a good visit with Brian Jean, the leader of the Wild Rose. I visited with Rick McIver. Um, you know, just talking about. Um, you know, what does the future look like and what, what do each of them see as the future of, of this province and how do we create common policies that, that uh, reflect conservative values and, and uh, allow this, this province to get back to where it needs to be as, a, as one of the drivers of, of the Canadian economy. Do you get the sense that, that Alberta has political allegiance up for grabs right now? How, do you, or do you get the sense that, that people right now are still early, uh, or even maybe too early in this government's mandate to start saying, you know, if we were to head back to the polls, say, a month from now, here's how I might vote. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's way too early. I, I still think there's a, a reality um, that hasn't set in yet, um, and it and it um, it needs to. I mean, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, um, this isn't about a party one way or the other or a leader it has to be about the future of our of our province are you paying attention uh, and, and i maybe asked the question uh, suspecting i know the answer already but to the federal conservative leadership race if we can even use that word right now it's still early in the process but is that something you feel like you have a vested interest in well I, you know i have a I think we all have vested interests in um, the values that are, you know, going to drive prosperity in this nation. Um, and you know, the, the fundamentally, fundamentally, I think conservative values are are about prosperity. You know, we we need to be um, more prosperous than the, the countries we're purporting to those jurisdictions we're purporting to compete with. At, at its at its core, conservative values are about about that prosperity about middle classes that are thriving and, and going to the next level, about businesses that are thriving and employing people. That's what pays the way. And um, and I think there's some anxiety, you know, that, that's going on right now at uh, all levels of, of uh, uh, at all provinces. I mean, I think there's, you know, you, there's, there's two of, of ten, I think, conservative premiers right now. Um, you, you know, 
Prime Minister Trudeau is certainly going a different direction with some pretty significant increases on the uh, national debt. So, you know, I think we've all got to ask the questions at the end of the day. Are these policies the ones that are going to lend themselves to uh, allowing us to compete as a nation against those where we need to compete with? What are one of the Prime Minister's early commitments, expenditures, or, or, or fulfillment of policy promises uh, that have been made that concern you? Well, it, it's, you know, there, there's a big infrastructure investment that they're proposing to make, and governments have to be very careful when they're investing in infrastructure because uh, it, at the end of the day, it's not just about building something. It's got to be building something that's going to create some value and allow, allow our citizens to be more competitive. So I'll be very interested to see where that money lands. It's really, it's really critical that they get that right because it's not just about spending money. It's where you're spending it, and is it going to create some, some real value? You can't talk about infrastructure spending in Alberta without talking about transitioning from coal by 2030. What's your take on that? Well, listen, um, you know, we, we, I think we understand as a, as a globe, as a, as, a, as, a, as a global community, that we want to have the most efficient means of, of producing um, energy and and you know we we use a lot of it in this province. Seventy uh, percent of our grid is is coal. So you know I I am I'm all for finding a way to do it, but it has to be done responsibly, Ryan. You know, to to come up with a policy that says we're going to phase out coal by 2030 without a plan just paralyzes the industry. And you've heard Transelta and Atco both come out and say they've suspended all capital investment in the province. We can't afford to have industries su- suspending capital investment. You know, so whatever we do, we've got to do responsibly. It's got to be done with the right plan. That was Brad Wall's comment last night just on carbon. You know, it's not, I'm not saying a carbon policy is bad. This isn't the time, though. He said, we can't afford to do this right now. Someone so, on the text line, though, says, you know, I mean, messages like this suggest, you know, in some people's eyes, the time is never appropriate. It's never a right time for a new tax or a carbon plan. Well, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that, but it's got to be tied to, to making a real difference. And, and let's, you know, you know, the, the, I think we should be leading. I mean, let's let's let let's do that, but let's keep in mind there's a thousand coal-fired power plants being built in the world this year. China built a hundred last year, so you know, you know, we want to be responsible and we want to lead, but let's do it in a way that makes sense that doesn't tie the hands of our four million people that are trying to make a go of it against. You know, you know, in the world economy, it's let's do it responsibly. Before I let you go. I know you sit on about a dozen different boards, and, I, and it's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but what's something that's going on right now that you've got your hands in, something you're involved with that you're really, really excited about? Uh, I'm tremendously excited about Fort Edmonton and uh, their Indigenous people's experience. Um, that is uh, something we've been working really, really hard on. Uh, it is, uh, will be the signature piece to, um, to really... Um, celebrate the history of our indigenous people and have a place that is theirs that that they they actually um they actually man it <laughs> they, they tell their story in a way that they want to and and it's it's really i think really critical that we get that built the last time that our paths crossed it was at rexall place and uh, if i remember correctly you were hanging out with scott moore the president of rogers broadcasting at the time i think and that was right before he went and toured rogers place and i saw he was absolutely raving about it i, I know that as you travel downtown you must be getting excited about that building opening as well it's completely transforming the look of edmonton's north downtown yeah it it, it is tremendously exciting for this city you know we haven't 
uh, had this kind of development. Um, you know, frankly, you know, I've, I've said many times it's taken us 30 years to recover from West Edmonton Mall, but, you know, West Edmonton Mall really ripped the guts out of our downtown. And um, that, that particular development is just energizing. You look at not just that place going up, but all the condominiums, et cetera, going up in and around it. I mean, it's really going to create a density for this city that it's never had in its downtown core before. One of those things, like if you haven't been downtown for two or three weeks and then you get back down there, you won't believe how quickly things are changing there. It's just blowing my mind. It's fantastic. Doug, we were looking forward to catching up with you and thrilled we were able to do it here in studio. Thanks for your time. My pleasure, Ryan. Keep up the good work, my friend. Appreciate that. That's Doug Goss, an officer of the Alberta Order of Excellence. Here's the news. Our thanks to Doug Goss. We want to do that uh, every once in a while on this show, just bring somebody in that's got a wealth of experience, carries a high community profile and a good deal of respect from a lot of people, uh, and especially people in different industries and different organizations on different boards, and just shoot the breeze, so to speak, get people's take on things and get the rest of us thinking. So our thanks to Doug Goss for that. A listener here says, uh, you're talking about West Edmonton Mall and the impact that that had on downtown Edmonton. Don't forget South Edmonton Common. That's huge as well, the impact there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, you you can't shut down business. You don't want to say that we're not going to develop certain parts of our city because we want to protect our downtown core. That's not the idea. But... You know, we've talked about it here before. You talk to city planners. You talk to those that have that have conducted studies on social trends and how cities grow in a healthy way. And oftentimes they'll say a healthy, strong city grows from its core out. Now, not to say that you just have a lack of services on the periphery, but how do you find that balance? That is the million, or in some cases, the $50 billion question. Lyle says, I'm sure Canada's carbon output being a parasite in the eye of an elephant will sink the planet into global warming oblivion. That from Lyle. Keith says, I would argue we're already leading in the oil and gas industry in both innovation and responsibility. Now we're being asked to lead on our lead? Yeah, I guess so. Somebody else out of Fort McMurray says, uh, Doug Goss should be prime minister. Did you catch Mike Jolly on the show? In the 9 o'clock hour, the high school teacher from Archbishop Jordan Catholic High out in Sherwood Park sat with us in studio to further elaborate on a presentation that he made to colleagues just this last Friday at the Greater Edmonton Teachers Convention. Essentially, Mike Jolly asserts that lenient deadlines, coddling students, no-zero policies are failing those students who most need structure. Now, Mike Jolly teaches the quote-unquote regular classes. He also works with troubled teens. So he is, you know, speaking from a point of understanding that sometimes learning needs to be customized, sometimes concessions need to be made, but generally speaking, an approach to education needs to be based on what's best for the kids. Many of you chimed in on the text line, and we wanted to leave some time to get to that. But first, to bring you up to speed, if you missed it, here's just a little clip. Here's a segment, a snippet of Mike Jolly earlier on the show. I am not a person that believes in lowering the bar. I believe in raising the bar, particularly for my students. My Dash 2 students are often at risk for a variety of different reasons. And I believe that in order for them to 
build a life that they're proud of as adults, they need to build a very strong character along the way. And I just wanted to share sort of my philosophies about how character building is so important and that we should be considering that in our classrooms as I do. That was Mike Jolly on what prompted his message, his passionate message. He got a standing ovation from his colleagues at that convention on Friday. Do you remember, if you were listening in, a, a listener said, I've got two university-age sons, and they don't even know which way to thread a nut into a bolt. You remember that? Well, Dennis, out of St. Paul, responded to that. He says, to that gentleman, to that listener, who has the two university-age sons who don't know which way to thread a nut into a bolt, he says, I have one question. Why does he think that teachers should teach kids everything? We as parents are more responsible for making sure that these kids are ready for the real world. And we need to be more responsible than teachers are. Kids have various teachers through their educational career, but they only have one set of parents. We can't abdicate our responsibility, says Dennis. We have a responsibility to our kids, and we can't hand it to teachers. He says teachers should reinforce the structure and the character building that's already being taught at home. They shouldn't have to take over. That's not a teacher's job. That's our job. Another listener at a barhead says, you got to remind your listeners, Ryan, that it's not only on teachers and parents. It's not especially just on teachers, these messages have to start at home. And parents need to support the teachers in healthy discipline of students. Another listener says, Mike Jolly is absolutely right about how discovery learning is just not cutting it for students. Have you heard about this discovery learning, by the way? If you're a parent involved in it, I know I don't have to tell you it's controversial. This listener says, when Edmonton Public did a decade of it through the 90s, our son had to learn to read with the Dick and Jane series that we dug out of my aunt's basement. She's formerly a grade one teacher. Now the whole province is looking at bringing it back. And that concerns me, says this listener. How does this happen? Goes on to say they're going to email me details on a parent who's been championing the fight against it on change.org. Great. You can email us anytime, by the way. Just go to 630ched.com, click on the shows link. Michelle says, hats off to Mike Jolly. You know, it's about time that this mentality of accountability comes back. Zeros should start right away. Kids need to learn how to fail just as well as they learn how to succeed. That from Michelle. It was kind of an interesting debate that was uh, prompted by a listener that called in wondering what Mike's take would have been on how early in a child's education career you can hand out a zero. In other words, would you give a zero to a kid in grade one? Would you give a zero to a kid in grade three or five or seven or nine? What do you think? Let us know. listener out of Edmonton here says, this is Dave, uh, I'm 100% in favor of zeros and reality for kids. Says, isn't the whole point of education to prepare our children to function in the real world? Then why lie to them through their entire school career? Dave says, life isn't fair, and you've got to show up, and you've got to do your best every single day. Yeah, here we go. Listener says, we pay for a math tutor, thanks to Discovery Learning. Yeah, I don't blame you. Another says, I learned about nuts and bolts from my dad, not from my teacher. And another out of Bonneville, just with a helpful tip, righty-tighty, (laughs) lefty-loosey. Yes, unless you're dealing with propane, right, guys? We'll be right back with more. Uh, We've pulled a couple highlights from our conversation with Mike Jolly, and we'll have that when we come back. But if you'd like to hear the entire hour, 
I mean, it sounds like all of Archbishop Jordan was tuned in. We know that the cosmetology class had it cranking through their speakers. You can find the SoundCloud link at 630ched.com. And of course, we podcast on iTunes as well. We'll be right back. Says a listener to our text line at 630-630, I was giving my kids zeros long before they ever walked into a classroom. This activity is commonly known as parenting. Another says, I'd like to say that teaching begins at home. My four-year-old knows how to thread nuts and bolts. He can point out each and every brand of vehicle while he's sitting in his car seat. Quite literally, this is just an example. I remember that as a little guy. I always always like to look out the back window of our safari minivan while we were on road trips and try to identify the make and model of vehicles night driving just by the headlights. Now that is going next level. That was my game on the road. Another listener out of Vermilion, good morning to you, says, failure begins as soon as a child understands what it means. No more tie games. Hmm, we could probably do an hour just on that. Is it important for someone to win and lose when it comes to children and sport? Is it important that someone's picked first and someone's picked last? Here's what Mike Jolly had to say about why failure is important when he sat with us here in this studio in the 9 o'clock hour. I think failure to me has always been a growth Uh, a learning sort of lesson that helps us grow. I'm 45, I'm relatively educated, I have lived in the world, as Jane Austen would say, and yet I fail every day. I still can't put that toilet seat down. My wife uh, still goes crazy because of those things. So if kids grow up thinking that success is actually the most important thing, then when they fail, and I have had watched friends go through this, the longer you go without failing, the more painful a failure is when it comes. Mm. So if kids learn to fail, learn that it's okay. One of the first lectures I give to my kids is embrace failure. It's okay. There's no shame in not succeeding. That's part of being, that's part of the most beautiful thing about being human. We fail every day and we keep going on. Listener on the text line says, would a child be any less devastated if they received their first zero in grade seven rather than grade one? To be honest, a younger child would probably get over it more quickly. Coddled children lead to helpless adults. I think that's a great text. I think that's bang on. Gina, were you, what was your, what was your, I mean, can you remember, what was your first failure that you remember? What was the first time early in your schooling career or not? that you can remember now as a grown adult? You know what? It would always have to be something to do with math. Always, always, always. I just, that was always my challenge. Anything to do with math or uh, PE because of my my breathing challenges, right, as, a, as an asthmatic, but definitely math. But did you grow up in a school setting or, or a scenario where as a seven or eight or nine-year-old girl, you would have got a math test back and it would say, or was it always like uh, you get a a clown sticker and a scratch on the back no I'll be 100% honest with you in grade 9 okay I passed grade 9 but I was held back for grade 9 math so when I went to grade 10 I had to retake grade 9 math interesting and grade 9 science interesting because and and again it was the the um math component of science, the the chemistry component of science. That, that totally pooched me yeah. because of it. So. I failed uh, math 10. I failed grade 10 math. Um, 
and and in particular, I think if I had to look back, the reason was probably because I never went to class, never did homework, and missed exams. That was probably why I failed. And but that it was wasn't my issue. I had to swallow my pride, and as a grade eleven student, go to a grade ten math class, take it again. And I learned my lesson. And it wouldn't have done me any favors whatsoever. I mean, I'm a young man at that point. I'm 16 years old. I have a driver's license for Pete's sake. If they trust me to drive a vehicle around, they should be able to trust me to attend class. I mean, mean, it's my own future that I'm messing with, right? But what was going to teach me? You think if they would have passed me, would they have done me any favors? Absolutely not. Quite frankly, I'm glad I failed that math class. I'm glad I had to take it again. Tim says, I'm now 65, retired businessman, having sold my small business, wow, for $1.75 million back in 2012. He says, failing grade 9 at age 14 was the first best thing that ever happened to me. That from Tim. That's great. Another listener says, if you're picked last, then the child needs to know why and if it can be fixed. If the kid who can't skate fails, it identifies where they can improve. The current generation is adept at pointing out others for their mistakes rather than fixing their own. Sean says there's no such thing as failing, only winning or learning. I love that. Another says if at first you don't succeed, you're on the right track. David says Erwin Lutzer wrote a book many years ago called Failure, The Back Door to Success, says it should be required reading. Bill says failure is a reality, also a learning tool to do better. Renee says, my nine-year-old runs the skid steer and can drive my truck, and I'm teaching my seven-year-old now. Wow. We talk, I mean, Do you remember the Bill 6? When Bill 6 was blowing up, and, and, and it still is, let's be honest, it's like a simmering pot right now. The story's far from over. But we heard from so many farm families and so many advocates for the rural way of life. If you can, if you can speak in major generalities, I understand there are different family structures in different communities, of course. There are some lazy farm kids. There are. But... Many people suggested that the rural way of life, the farm life, prepares kids for adulthood and vis-a-vis success more than any other because of the responsibilities that are placed on kids, because of the accountability there, because of the structure. You know, that's what people are when people argue for for music programs in schools or for sports teams or debate teams or whatever the case may be, scouts, cubs, brownies, whatever. It's teaching kids what it means to be relied upon, what it means to be part of a team, what it means to be a a contributor. But what would be wrong with having a scout leader at a young age in a position that not every kid gets to have? What would be wrong with naming a captain on a Adam or Peewee or Might hockey team? Not everybody gets to be captain. Just like as an adult, not everybody gets to be CEO. Not everybody gets to be at the top of the mountain. Why not start the lessons early? We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, and Gina, I'm, I'm flirting with fate here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's open up the phones. Maybe see if we can get a closing remark right after this break. 780-496-0063. We'll be right back. 
On the text line, Betty says, my son, now 19, would get mad at report cards with teachers. You know, they, they would have letter grades, not actual marks. So I'd remark his homework and give him more errors than the teachers. I pushed him. I taught him accountability and to work harder. Now at 19, he's finished college working and living in Vancouver and uh, strikes me as more responsible than kids much older than him. That from Betty. Nathan says, I saw a photo once. It said, prepare the child for the path. Don't prepare the path for the child. Wise words. That from Nathan. Wayne Oaks calling in. It's good to hear from you. What's on your mind? Well, I just thought I'd give you another example of um, expecting uh, high results from those who will be teaching or influencing others. Right. Uh, Over my tenure uh, policing, I spent nine years as a mentor in the D.A.R.E. program, right? drug abuse resistance education. And as a mentor, I was part of a cadre that taught the program to other officers. There was a very clear expectation that all officers taking that training had to give 100% dedication to the learning activity. If you didn't, you would be failed and sent home. Hmm. We did fail and sent home several officers over that uh, nine-year period that I was involved. And why do you think the failure was important, Wayne? Well, when you're going out and having such a strong influence on others, you have to have that very strong dedication. I strongly believe in the philosophy that if you fail to teach, you fail the student. Hmm. And so when we have those officers going out and imparting those critical life skills to others, you have to have that 100% participation. And I think that also boils down to to teaching our youth how to um, take on education, because every time that you learn and you're involved in a classroom, you play a model role responsibility in your influence on others around you. So it's a learning uh, expectation for the student, and it's also a teaching expectation for the student. And so it's a very calm, it's not as simple as just sitting in a classroom and taking a class. There's a lot of complexities that need to be addressed. And the the teacher that you had on, I listened to the entire uh, program, and uh, my hat goes off to him incredible teacher. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for the call, Wayne, and thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. You bet. We'll give the last remark of the show to this listener who simply says, too much pressure can also cause anxiety. You have no idea how many young children are too anxious and afraid to try. Also something to consider. Thanks for being part of the conversation today. We'll take some of these emails you've sent and get them into our mailbag for the next time we open that up. We've got an excellent Friday show in store. I can tell you right now we're kicking it off talking about the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, but we've got a heck of a roundtable coming up as well. We'll talk to you then.